Welcome to Group Talk. Four shows, one podcast from the Small Group Network focusing on topics relevant to small group ministries. Whether you're in a church of 100 or 10,000, whether you're a volunteer or staff, we want to support, encourage, and equip you to lead well. So relax, listen, and enjoy Leadership Journey with Bill Search. Well, welcome back to the Leadership Journey. I am your guide, Bill Search, and it is a privilege to have a little bit of time with you today. Thank you for tuning in to all the different small group network podcasts, and hopefully you've been encouraged by them. I know that I have, most recently, the conversation Carolyn Tketa had with uh, her uh, guest, Bart, was just uh, really uplifting, encouraging, challenging. So hopefully you'll tune into that if you missed it already. Well, today I am joined by John Dickerson. And John is a former journalist, he's a pastor, and he's the author of the new book, Jesus Loves Me, Christian Essentials for the Head and the Heart. John, so glad to have you with us on the leadership journey today. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you serve, and how you got into all this. Yeah, so Bill, I'll I'll start by inspiring our small group pastors to keep doing what you're doing. Uh, When I graduated with my journalism degree, I moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, and I started working for a number of newspapers there in the Phoenix market. Started attending a church as a layperson called Scottsdale Bible Church. And uh, it was actually a small group's pastor uh, who saw me uh, interacting in a small group and said, hey, I think you could lead a small group. Um, I, you know, wasn't a pastor. I was just a full-time journalist in my early 20s, young, single, professional guy. And uh, so sure enough, he equipped me to start leading a small group. And it was actually in that small group uh, that I learned that the spiritual gift God has entrusted to me is the gift of teaching. So it was through small group serving and involvement that I was able to identify my spiritual gift, uh, started attending Phoenix Seminary out there, and uh, for a long time thought, oh, I'll just keep being a vocation journalist and teaching the Bible uh, in the local church. Eventually, God called me to do that vocationally. I've now gotten to do that uh, as a senior pastor of a church of 40 people that grew to about 500. Then I moved to California and worked as a teaching pastor for a guy named Chip Ingram. And then about three years ago, relocated uh, to the Indianapolis area where I get to be the lead pastor of a church here called Connection Point. You know, we could almost stop there because I think you've just inspired a whole host of people who wait a minute, a guy was just joining a small group and now he's a pastor of a church. Like that is, that is the like sort of dream ideal of somebody who engages so deeply in a small group that they would embrace their ministry call. So John, I didn't know that and I'm encouraged to know that now and I know you've just encouraged a whole bunch of people. So thanks for sharing that. It, you you wrote this recent book, Jesus Loves Me, Christian Essentials for the Head and Heart. And I, I want to know uh, the time it takes to write a book. What was it that inspired you to write this particular book on this particular topic? 
Yeah. So one of the things I love about the audience we're talking to right now is uh, I work so hard every time I talk to avoid seminary terms and insider lingo. But hey, with this group, I can nerd out a little bit. And, uh, you know, this is my fifth book. My first couple were very research oriented around cultural change in the United States and essentially what we would call this post-truth reality. You know, in 2016, Oxford University and Oxford Dictionaries uh, defined post-truth as the word of the year. What is a post-truth culture? It's what we're all seeing on social media and experiencing with the people we're trying to disciple. Um, that truth is no longer based on, you know, a written standard somewhere. For most people, it's based on their feelings. And our young people are uh, increasingly being taught from a post-truth uh, assumption. And so what I've found uh, now that I'm the lead pastor of a larger church is I've got people I've inherited who've been in church for 15, 20 years. And through no fault of anyone who came before me, uh, some of them say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And they, they don't really know the basics. Um, we no longer have catechism. We no longer have confirmation. And I'm not saying we should go back to those. But as a pastor, Jesus Loves Me, this book really came out of a sermon series. Um, and by the way, we'll get the details later, but there's a five-part video series completely freely available to you guys with a five-part small group study um, that you can use in your church. You don't have to buy the book to get that. That's all just at my website, johnsdickerson.com. But wait I felt, a minute, just just one second there. Yeah, you, yeah. So a uh, a ministry could use this as a some churches called a campaign or, oh, or yeah. at least a, a small group study that they could use. And you're saying you give that away? Yeah, absolutely. It's completely wow. free. So there's awesome. the five videos. There's the small group study guides. Um, there's also like the pro presenter files and sermon outlines. If mm -hmm. you uh, or if your you know uh, staff wanted to. Uh, actually preach through the campaign, um, you can take those and you can edit them and, you know, use them how you, how you choose. But um, ultimately, the Spirit of God convicted me of just, you know, Hebrews 13, we are going to give account to God for those who are under our care for their souls. Now, we're not going to give account to God for their decisions, but we'll give account for, you know, what did we teach them? And I kind of realized, and I think uh, there's, you know, across the theological spectrum, um, uh, you know, every truth of God and every ideal way of doing his ministry is like a road that has a ditch on two sides, you know? Yeah. And I think, it, you know, if, if the ideal road of discipleship is the middle, you know, there's a ditch on one side that we can become um, – so seeker oriented for good reason that if you look at the 52 weeks of a year of the weekend teaching, you know, it's all felt need, it's all evangelistic, but could someone possibly attend our church for a few years and not actually know the theological Christian essentials? And then on the other side of the road, you could fall into the ditch of being, a, you know, a seminary trained PhD, um, I'm going to teach expository verse by verse, and the people in your church know a lot of terms and a lot of deep truths, but do they actually know uh, the simple gospel? And so my goal with this, first of all, it was a sermon series, Jesus Loves Me, was that everyone in my church from eighth grade up, um, if they were sitting on an airplane and they had no books, no internet access, and someone said, uh, what is a Christian? What do you have to believe to be a Christian? Uh, or if they were putting their child or grandchild to bed and they're laying in bed next to them and their 
kid says, what do I have to believe to be a Christian? I wanted to equip my people to not only know the word of God, but to actually have memorized um, the basic beliefs. And so we used the song, Jesus Loves Me. And by the way, if you do this as a churchwide study, something really fun we did, we set up a karaoke video booth in the lobby uh, about a month before the series. And we had people uh, sing Jesus Loves Me. And then we had our, our video team kind of edit it together in a montage. We use that as the bumper before each sermon. So all the people from the church could see, you know, Jesus loves me. We had young, old, all sorts of racial diversity and stuff. So, so, uh, but the point is that simple song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Um, If our people have a simple, clear biblical definition for each of those words, they will know the Christian essentials. And actually, while teaching this material, I had a guy come up to me in tears. It was on uh, week three, this I know, you know, Jesus Mm. loves me, this I know. Have you decided for yourself? Have you repented and believed? Um, Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Believing that Jesus is God, that he's the Messiah, that he died on the cross, rose again, admitting your need for him, just these basic things. He came up to me in tears and he said, John, I've been going to church for 10 years. I never realized I just, I have to personally believe Jesus is the Messiah and died for my sins. I'm doing that today. And we got to baptize him about a month later. Uh, pretty cool. That's really the heart of you this. You know, isn't that incredible? And you you pointed something out, which is while our attendance of our church might be strong, it might even be growing, it doesn't mean that the people who are attending particularly new people, maybe even people who transfer from another church, it does not mean that they understand what it means to be a Christian. They may know what it means to be a churchian or a church attender, but that's a different deal than being a follower of Christ. And so uh, this is a really good endeavor to drill deeper into those essentials. And I love that you you framed it around uh, a child's song that nearly everybody, at least in the United States, probably is familiar with in some way, shape, or form. So it's very memorable. I love that. Yeah, that's the goal, is that uh, you know people will uh, memorize these very basic things. One of the things I write about in the book and say in the messages is um, it's not complicated, but it is precise. Um, and, and both the book and sermon series use just a ton of stories and visuals and illustrations. And of course, they're all based off of scripture. But, um, you know, the okay, primary- say that Say that again, because I think yep. someone might have gone, what did he just say? Okay. It's not complicated, but it's... But it is precise. So okay. I'll, I'll give you a Bible verse for that. And then I'll give you a picture of that. Um, okay. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God that leads to salvation, you know, to everyone who believes. And so um, with our people, I use pictures and I I show a a phone charger, you know, where you plug in your iPhone or your Samsung phone. And it's just this little piece of metal. If you zoom in on it, um, it's very precise. You can't take a Samsung charger and plug it into an iPhone. Um, And so it's not complicated. You know, my my four-year-old can plug in or unplug a phone, but it is precise. It has to be just the right shape. And it's the same with believing in Jesus. It's not complicated. Our people don't need to go to seminary um, and we don't need to teach them a bunch of seminary words to teach them the, the simple beliefs. And so 
really, if you think of a power plug that you'd plug into the wall, you've got those three prongs. That's really what this Jesus Loves Me book and small group study and sermon series does is, you know, Jesus clearly is one of the prongs. What do you have to believe about Jesus according to Jesus? And then something I've done... um, worked really hard to do, and I feel like God has allowed me some success in it, is really trying to equip our people to live in a post-truth culture, but be truth-based Bible-believing Christians without using any of those words. (laughs) So in other words, just kind of um, teaching them almost at an eighth grade level, hey, we live at a time where people say pretty much whatever they believe about something, and they say, well, Jesus would believe that, right? People co-opt Jesus to whatever their feeling or opinion is. And so the the book just directly but clearly um, uses the words of Scripture as well as stories to just say, hey, we don't get to pick what it looks like to follow Jesus. Jesus said, here's the power that leads to salvation. Here's how you plug into the power grid of the universe. And we have to believe what he says, <laughs> not what we feel. You know, I think that you tap into something here that is incredibly important. How often have we heard, at least I have heard people say, well, if Jesus was here today, he wouldn't be going to church. He'd be down at the bar. He'd be down with this group or this group. And when someone says that, and I feel uh, safety to say it, and I'm not going to uh, get uh, escalate some sort of argument, I, I always point out there were bars in Jesus' day, and he didn't go to them either. Now, I'm not saying he wouldn't go to a bar. What I, my point is, is what we've done is uh, we've recast Jesus in our own image. So whatever makes us feel affirmed, encouraged, whatever, we try to see Jesus in that light, not the Jesus of the Bible. And, uh, and so if I hear what you're saying, you, you know what Jesus said, you know what Jesus said about himself and about the life found in Christ, rather than what our culture says is the Christian life, because those, those aren't necessarily the same thing. Sometimes they uh, corroborate, but sometimes they don't. And so we need to know what the truth is. Absolutely. That's kind of the theme passage for this study is where Jesus says in John chapter 8, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so the book kind of helps people understand, hey, to be a follower of Jesus means you actually have to follow Jesus. You know, (laughs) to be a Christian means you actually have to be like Christ. Now, it's not works-based salvation. It's not any kind of shame-based legalism. That's all balanced out really well, especially in the section, Jesus loves me. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, again, I'm finding for my people, for American Christians right now, the biblical view. So essentially, the Jesus section, we're teaching biblical Christology. (laughs) The love section, we're teaching soteriology, salvation. The me section, we're teaching biblical anthropology, but we're doing all of it without using those big, long words. And so in the biblical anthropology, you know, we're able to say, hey, are people inherently good, like a lot of people say, or are people irredeemably evil? Because we live in a culture where we're taught that everyone's inherently good, but if you disagree with them, you're irredeemably evil. And so which one is it? And then we look at the word of God to say, well, we're all glorious, including every Muslim, every atheist, everyone Mm -hmm. who hates us is made in the image of God. 
And so every person is glorious, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So everyone is a glorious ruin. And again, each each section uses stories. So I'm a car guy. I use this story about a classic Ferrari that was found dilapidated in a barn in France, one of these barn finds. The car covered in dust, you know, the tires are flat, the engine's not going to start, was worth $24 million because of who made it. And that every human being is inherently valuable and eternally valuable and dignified because they're made in the image of God. But every human being is also ruined by sin. And there's that, only the way, one I restoration. Have, I, yeah. I, just, I have to stop you. When you, your book is terrific. Up front, you said you don't even need the book. I would tell everybody listening, buy this book. It's so good. I enjoyed it. But that illustration jumped off the pages for me. Now, maybe it's because you and I are both Michigan natives and automotive is king in Michigan. At least it was at one time. And so you, when you describe that. I remember that story when it hit the press because anything involving cars, I look at. So in your illustration, that was such a dynamic way of communicating both incredible value and absolute destitution simultaneous. And now other people who may not be car people can still get the metaphor that they're going to understand Ferrari, uh, old, valuable, but sure looks like junk now. And that is such a great way for us to understand this basic idea of humanity, because you are right. You know, there is there's the either everything is fine or everyone's or somebody who disagrees with me is absolutely lost. But the good news is that's only halfway through your book, right? You you move on from there and get us to the next stage, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And that's part of the beauty of these um, simple ideas. And really, you know, for me, one of my heroes as a pastor is Rick Warren. I feel like one of his gifts is taking very complex theological ideas and putting them into incredibly simple words. And that was really my target with this book, is that any eighth grader could hear or read the section on Jesus and leave knowing, okay, he's fully God, he's fully human, he's the Messiah. They don't have to fully understand the Trinity, though I give resources for that for people who want to go into it. Loves, he came into the world on a rescue mission, he died on the cross for me, rose from the dead. Me, well, uh, I'm a glorious ruin. And that even gets into sanctification without using the word sanctification of saying, you know, so um, if you're not a perfect Christian, do you lose your salvation? All that kind of stuff. We don't directly say those things, but we more or less say, once you trust in Christ, um, you are already glorious, but ruined by sin. The moment you trust in Christ, um, you're a new creation. And he starts to restore you from the inside out. And so now your work is not to earn your salvation or to try to get God's approval. You have his approval because you believed in Jesus' work on the cross. Your work is to obey him one day at a time and surrender. And as you do that, he restores you just like restoring a classic car. One piece at a time. He'll work on your pride. He'll sand down your lust. He'll work on your creed. He'll make you a servant rather than a taker. And he restores you. Uh, that leads to the This I Know section, which is a great section for you to know as a pastor, okay, everyone in my small group or in my small groups, you know, it uses the old, <laughs> if you were to get in a car accident today on a scale mm -hmm. of one to 10, how sure are you you'd be with the Lord? You know, and by the end of that section, everyone can know for sure it's a 10 out of 10. It's not an eight or a seven or a nine and a half. And, and then 
my initial heart in this whole project was that final section for the Bible tells me so. You know, I'm, I'm technically a millennial, having done a lot of research on kind of post-truth Christianity, seeing the post-truth mindset bleed into a lot of churches uh, and Christian institutions. I think in our lifetimes, we're going to start to see some uh, boards of large Christian organizations um, start to have board members who don't hold that the Word of God is the standard for all we do and say but instead the culture is. And so without getting into the culture wars or any of those kind of things, this book really does what Jesus taught us to do in Matthew 28. We all know the first part of the Great Commission, go make disciples, uh, baptizing them, but let's not forget the part, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And so the this I know, or the for the Bible tells me so section of the book really says, um, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you've got to make the word of God the standard for all you believe and do because that's what Jesus did and you're following him. So each section of the book has a summary of between six and 15 scriptures directly about that. So for example, on that one, you know, section summary, we choose the Bible as the unchanging standard for all we do and believe because Jesus did. We must read and obey the word of God to realize our identity in Christ. And, you know, one of the many scriptures in there is Luke 16, where Jesus says, it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. And of course, so many other scriptures. And so um, in our church, we're now using this Jesus loves me study as part of our our baptism class for people who are about to get baptized or sometimes people get baptized right away and then we take them through this after to make sure, does this person have a biblical, simple understanding of who Jesus is, what he did on the cross, who they are, that they've received salvation, um, and now that the word of God is the standard for all they do and believe. I think what you have provided here is a tool that is so transferable. This isn't just going to work in Indiana. This is going to work, I think, worldwide because it's based on scripture. You've you've identified something here. And in the words of one of my friends, he likes to say, uh, regarding somebody who has taught something that everyone can understand, mm. he, he will say, he put the cookies on the bottom shelf. <laughs> That's right. And meaning anyone can reach it. The kid or the old person can reach it. And you've done something here with this book that allows people to grapple with core biblical truth. I think the, and you've done a fine job of identifying the essentials. Uh, Folks that are listening to this that maybe have particular doctrinal proclivities, they won't find in this book um, an overt leaning towards something because this is all, should be agreeable for all Christians, I think of all time. I grew up a a mixture of Baptist and Lutheran, and both sides would find this book very agreeable. I serve a Church of God, Anderson Church right now, and we would find this very agreeable. Wesleyan Calvinists would find this book very agreeable because you've you've identified, and I appreciate you kind of even putting that as a, hey, this is our baptism preparation class now. It is. Uh, it actually reminded me of one of my old favorite books written by John Stott called Basic Christianity, which Stott is a now deceased uh, English pastor, and he wrote of an old style. It's not for everybody, but I love it. But what you did was, I think, expand that out and write it in a way that my 15-year-old son could read it and go, yeah, I know what he's talking about. That made sense. 
And so that, that's the heart. And Bill, you described it well. Like you, I come from a, a pretty eclectic uh, theological background uh, within Orthodox Christianity. Um, yeah. You know, I studied under Wayne Grudem, who would be much more reformed. I've got friends who are not at all reformed. I'm now in the um, independent Christian church movement, though I've always just kind of been a biblical centrist. And so, uh, yeah, I was very careful as I wrote this book, you know, Daryl Bach from Dallas Theological Seminary endorsed it, but, you know, so did um, more just practical people like Larry Osborne or Carrie Newhoff and others. And so um, it is intentionally um, avoids the potholes <laughs> and the ditches well, and on both sides of the road. Yeah. Well done. You've done that well. <laughs> now, I want to turn the, I want to turn the conversation ever so slightly simply because in our remaining maybe five, 10 minutes we have together here, I, I know that a lot of people who tune into these podcasts, they themselves have a creative streak and they've asked themselves, am I a writer? Or maybe they keep a journal, maybe, they, maybe they've tried their hand at writing an article or two, maybe they've written some curriculum for within their church. There, there's probably more than a few aspiring authors out there. You're a former journalist, you're a published author. I want to just pick your brain a little bit on how you go about the writing process. So just in our remaining minutes, let me just start with um, any sort of open-ended tips that you would have about the would-be author out there that says, I think I'd like to write a book. What do you recommend? Well, first, I would encourage them. Yeah, I've had times where I've wondered, this is my fifth book. You know, God, does the world really need any more Christian books? Um, and as you mentioned about John Stott, what I've realized is culture is always changing. And just like Jesus was God incarnate, uh, we're not God, but we are his body. And he does call new communicators in every generation because to communicate successfully changes with each generation. So I would just encourage everyone listening um, God appointed you at this moment in history for a purpose. He needs, uh, or he has chosen to use <laughs> mm-hmm. you uh, to communicate his truth now. And so, yes, whatever gifts God has put in you, if that's for the written word or the spoken word um, or other spiritual gifts, please fan them into flame for the glory of God and for uh, the good of his kingdom. Um, now, in my case, um, you know, I actually, when I was 17 years old, uh, this was before I ever cared about being a pastor or anything, I had a life goal of publishing my first book at age 30. Well, um, I walked away from my journalism career when I was 26. And around that time, um, I I literally, I just say this because I think other brothers and sisters will relate to this. I wanted to write so badly. And I was being successful uh, in writing as a journalist. The first church God called me to was 40 people. And so I gave up my salary, my benefits, my my whole writing career and left it to shepherd this church. And um, it was literally, if you've been to Arizona, I was in Scottsdale, which is the Phoenix area. This church was up in the mountains. So every time my young wife and I would drive up to this little church, I felt like Abraham going up the mountain with Isaac. <laughs> and I felt like I have, God was calling me to take a knife and stab it in the heart of my dream of writing. Um, and, I, and I actually did that, not gracefully, but obediently said, God, I'm going to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, not 
what I've always wanted to do. Um, in fact, a, a month and a half after I started at that little church, um, uh, God allowed me to win a fairly prestigious National Journalism Award, and I got this offer from the University of Michigan to come be kind of a pretty much like you get $80,000 for the year. You just live on the University of Michigan campus, take some journalism classes, and write a book. <laughs> it was like my life dream. And God literally, the moment that offer came through, the Holy Spirit brought to my mind the verse, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of the kingdom. And I just knew I'm not even supposed to consider this offer. I'm supposed to shepherd this flock of 40 people that God has given to me. And so the interesting thing for, for mine, now this isn't the craft part, this is the heart part was then as I started to pastor, I started to see some things because of my background as a journalist that I felt other pastors weren't seeing. And so I, with very open hands, put it before the Lord and said, God, are you calling me um, to write these ideas down? I know I died to that. And I actually very tentatively, and this is this, we will get a little bit into sovereignty and free will here, which I think are both like hundred percent, just like Jesus is fully God and fully man, you know? Um, I, I kind of said, God, it, if it's your will for me to do this, um, would you allow my seminary, Phoenix Seminary, to – I put out a fleece. W would you let the seminary um, give me permission to do the research as an independent study class? So I kind of put this little proposal together. You know, I wanted to do all this research on sociology and demographic trends in the American church. Could I do this for three credits? They said yes. So I said, okay, great. So then that semester I got my three credits. I'm like, well, whether or not it becomes a book, I'm moving ahead in what God's called me to do. Um, and pretty much then I had my thesis and the majority of my research for my first book. So then my second fleece, as it were, was I said, you know, God, it, if this is your will, I felt led to go the route of a kind of traditional publisher and agent and not self-publish. And so I said, um, I'll spend one semester out of seminary um, writing that into a book proposal. And if a publisher picks it up, great. And I'll do it. And if a publisher doesn't, then I'm just going to keep my eyes right ahead, discipling this church I've been given and going through seminary. Um, and, and then in God's timing, one of those publishers did pick it up. And, and so I guess I just, there's a, there's a surrender and God's sovereignty. You work as if it all depends on you, but you pray as if it all depends on God part of it. You know, as a Michigan native, uh, you, that took some serious faith to go 80 K live in Ann Arbor. Anybody who's been to Ann Arbor realizes it's a pretty neat town, university of Michigan, and, and, to, and to hold steady to the vision God had for you. There's a few things that really strike me is one is the surrender of self. The other is to, at the same time, you, you, you did open a prayerful dialogue with God about what would you have me do with this gift? You obviously have a writing gift. So it's how do you steward the writing gift God has given you? You can use it for your own glory or you can use it for God's glory. And so just in your little story there, the snippet you shared, what comes out loud and clear is that this wasn't about making your name great, but it was about stewarding a gift God has given you. And God could shut that down. God could say, hey, it's good enough that you and I have this relationship in a journal somewhere. But you presented that and God has used that. So, okay. 
Yeah, I just think that's the beautiful, you know, and I'm no hero in that. I mean, everyone listening has surrendered to God in similar ways, and we continue to one week at a time as we're following Jesus. Um, But the beauty in it is if I had gone to the University of Michigan and done the kind of book they would have wanted me to do, it would just be, you know, I'm I'm not saying it wouldn't matter, but – I buried the dream and I let God bring it back to life. And now here, this one is my fifth one. And I I am able to see lives changed and, you know, get letters in the mail and email and social media messages of people whose lives are changed. Even this one, um, Jesus loves me. When I taught the sermons, the very first week was, does it even matter if we get Christianity right? And the fourth point was, it matters when we face death. Well, just two weeks ago, I did a funeral for a 22-year-old girl in our church, beautiful young lady who had brain cancer. And her Bible in Romans 1.16, her family had showed me this picture of her Bible. There's my full sermon notes. And right next to Romans 1.16, get this, I did the math. I pulled out my preaching calendar. It was two years to the day before her funeral. So she would have been 20 years old. She had no idea she had brain cancer at that time, just this beautiful young lady. And right next to I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. She has my entire sermon outline. Point number four, it matters when we face death. She had written that in her handwriting uh, two years to the week before her funeral. That's why we do what we do, right? That's why we all do what we do. I was going to say that is, that puts a fine point on how important this is a sobering moment that what we do isn't build a career. It isn't to establish a discipline. What we do is to be used of God as stewards and shepherds used by God to change lives. Just to think about the the ultimate destiny that all human beings have, that sobering reality, it does matter. What we believe does matter. The work we do does matter. The preaching of that sermon does matter. The writing of this book does matter. So, you know, I appreciate the encouragement you gave to those listening up front that just said, it, it, you have something to offer and an encouragement of, of, of steward that well. Let me, let me ask just a real practical question. Once you've sat down and you go, okay, I'm going to write this book. Um, what are some of the real practical next steps that help move an idea? Because I have a lot of friends. I've, I've written or thought of about 20 books in my head, and very few of them actually become published. So what's the process you go through that takes this idea and either filters out and goes, this one's going to be the one I'm going to put effort into? And then what are some of the real practical things you do to build on that work, to make that a reality from a theory? Because I bet you a lot of people listening right now go, oh, man, I've got an idea. I've got an idea. And but moving from idea to traction, what would you recommend? Yeah, that's so good. I'm going to give some really pagan advice here. Uh, probably one of the most practical things for me. Uh, I happen to be a, I was a professional writer before I was a pastor. So there's some foundational things there from my college education and my journalism career. But one of the most practical things I was ever told as a writer was um, you have to read a lot to be a great writer. Um, 
Now, it might technically not be true in this day of social media where people can hire a ghostwriter, but if you don't have like a million followers and you're not a celebrity who can just hire a ghostwriter and the book sells just because your face is on it, you do have to read good writing to write good writing. And so um, as a journalist, what I would do is the specific kind of stories that I was doing, I would find the best writers in the world at that. So if you feel a calling to write in a certain subgenre, if you will, whether that's devotional or maybe it's more care oriented, um, find the best writers in that area and read what they're doing, not to imitate them, but um, there's something that happens in the brain. Every great writer is a great reader. And thankfully now with Audible, you can be a reader when you're you know driving to pick the kids up from school or going to the dentist or whatever. Uh, you can be listening to audiobooks. Um, the best tool practically that I was ever given as a writer is Stephen King, the you know fiction writer. Uh, mm-hmm. Stephen King has a book on writing called Literally on writing. Highly recommend the audio version. There are some swear words in it. So if that's a stumbling block for you, you know, maybe don't get it. But if you can handle handle listening to a non-Christian talk like a non-Christian, Stephen King's book on writing is probably the most practical tool. He talks a lot about the disciplines of it. Now, of course, he writes fiction. So there's certain sections where he's really talking about fiction that uh, you can skip over, though there's a little little bit of value in them. But he he gives a lot of just really practical, you know, writing his work and you've kind of got to have a place where you close the door and close out the world and you do the work. Um, and so, uh, that book for me was incredibly practical. Um, and then I would encourage those praying about it, do start with prayer and start with the why, you know, why would I do this? And if the why is for, uh, money or fame, don't do it. There's way easier ways to make money or be famous well, than writing are books. You saying, you know? <laughs> are you saying that Christian publishing doesn't pay the bills? <laughs> I'm saying there's a lot easier ways to pay them. That's for sure. <laughs> it is very, that yeah. is, you know, that is actually is it's, it's that's worth mentioning. Is that uh, I've published books, you've published books. Yeah, I think your books have sold much better than my books. Uh, it, it, uh, I joke with people, it wouldn't even pay the cable bill. So, uh, you're, I think you're right. If I would have gotten a part-time job at the Home Depot, I might've made about the same amount of money between the work I put in on the book. But you don't do it for that, do you? You do it because you have something burning inside of you that you feel needs to get out. And uh, I I have found, and maybe I, I wonder if you have found this to be true, but in the process of writing, it helps sharpen my focus and makes me more exact. So I might have a nebulous idea, but the process of outlining, chaptering, writing forces me to think in a detail. Would you Would you say that's true? I mean, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Writing is refined thinking, and as you will learn in Stephen King's book on writing, <laughs> any first draft is about thirty to forty percent longer than it needs to be. Your your first draft is never it. And, and actually, a trick I learned from that book by Stephen King is once you've got your first draft done and you've even done some editing on it, uh, he literally prints a physical copy. He puts it in a drawer and he sets a calendar reminder for it's either three months or six months. You'll have to double check in the book and he completely disengages from it. 
And then when that calendar reminder goes off, he opens that drawer, he pulls it out. And it's so fun because you read your own words, but they're not, you know, when, when you're working on it day in and day out, or even if you just have a, a little three hour block every week while you're working on it, it's your baby. And you kind of have some of the sections memorized almost after it sits in a drawer for three months or six, you pull it out and it's like you're reading someone else's words and there'll be parts where you're like, Oh man, this is actually really good. And there'll be other parts where you're like, this is terrible. What was I thinking? And that's when you can make some really aggressive edits and really take that manuscript to the next level. Um, and then, you know, Stephen King will also, once he gets it to that point, send it to about five ideal readers. So five people who, um, are the kind of people he wrote the book for. Um, So you don't send it to 50 people. You don't post it on social media. You just think of who are five people who are exactly the kind of person I wrote this book for. And I'm going to send a printed copy to each of them and ask them to mark it up. Um, And then you incorporate their feedback. Um, And then it's after all of that content editing that you get into the more kind of grammar stuff. So um, so that's a few process things. I think big, big picture Um, You start with the why, you know, why is God calling you to do this? How is it going to help other people? And then, of course, yeah, you definitely need to have an outline, you know, where you've got your, you know, three to seven main sections. And of course, they'll have subsections and chapters in them. But um, and then the other thing that I would mention just for the kind of marketplace we live in, because the world is so rapidly changing around us. Earlier, I joked about, you know, celebrities and Instagram influencers who can get a publishing deal, even though obviously they're not writers and the publisher hires a ghostwriter for them. As pastors, that's none of us. But there is um, a marketplace reality right now of what you call platform. Um if C.S. Lewis was alive today and wasn't a professor at Oxford, I don't know that much of his writing would get published by the publishers today. I, I hate to say that. Same with Oswald Chambers. Because the publishers are in it to make money. They're not in it as a charity. And so they want to sell book, they want to print books that will sell. And so again, this is where we have to check our our old nature versus our new and surrender it to God, as I described earlier uh, in my own journey. But um if the publisher sees, oh, you actually have a following of people who would buy this, well, they're going to be much more inclined to do it. Now, here's the beauty. If you're doing it for your why, which is to help people follow Jesus in some way or to solve some problem in the world, then it could be very natural for you using social media and just the friendships you have to create tools and other things that just naturally help people solve that problem before your book comes out. I mean, kind of like how I mentioned earlier, hey, the five-part sermon group, uh, small group study for Jesus Loves Me, it's free on my website. You don't have to buy the book. The book's a tool if you want it, but I'm here to help you help people follow Jesus. I'm not here to sell books. And when you do that, um, you do that for the right reasons, but ironically, uh, it will create a following of people who you're helping to solve that problem. Uh, and then when you go to the publisher and say, hey, here's this book. Uh, and by the way, there's, look, I've got this little uh, Instagram account, you know, better small group pastors or whatever it is. And, you know, it, it's got 2,500 followers. It's not huge, but they're really devoted. They really love this. And I think a ton of, you know, then you, so there is a platform side to it um, sure. in publishing now. Uh, and that can, 
can sound really um, carnal if it's approached from the wrong perspective. But I think if we approach it all with a servant mentality, I'm here to, Ephesians 4, equip the body. I'm here to help followers of Jesus live like Jesus. Um, so th- those are a few things. I could go on and on. But you I, know, John, yeah. I think that's a, and that's a great place to land is that this really starts out with, uh, I'm here to help. I'm here to help build up the body of Christ, that uh, anything that I'm offering, whether it's uh, spoken through a lesson or whether it's written through a book or an article, it's it's designed, at least the motive as a follower of Christ, should be to help other people. And so uh, even your remark about platform, there can be an ugly side to platform building and there can be a very positive side to platform building. And really it will revolve around that heart of service for other people and your heart of service for the body of Christ comes out loud and clear, John. So, so appreciate you giving of your time and your energies uh, to this podcast, to the book. And uh, just as a reminder to those listening, the newest book is Jesus Loves Me, Christian Essentials for the Head and Heart. And it can be found wherever fine books are sold. I got mine off of, I think, Amazon, but you could get it from a variety of different places. So John, thank you so much for being with us today. Bill, my pleasure. It's been really a joy to be with you. And uh, small group pastors, keep it up. We need you guys and you gals. Keep doing exactly what you're doing. All right. Well, I'll see you next time on The Leadership Journey. Thanks for being with us today. My privilege. What's up, Small Group Network? Jason Banzoff here, Group Talk producer and Small Group Network Creative Arts Director. Thank you so much for tuning in this episode of Leadership Journey. And thank you so much to Bill Search and John Dickerson for that great episode. Now, before we go, let's talk about some upcoming events. Due to the COVID-19 restrictions in California, this year's annual lobby gathering will be held live online. And the lobby is one of the nation's premier small group training and networking events. This year's event will run from 9 a.m. to noon Pacific Standard Time each day, and will start off with a general session in the first hour, followed by various breakout sessions on every small group hot topic you can think of. Speakers include Steve Gladen from Saddleback, Bill Willis from North Point, and Dave Enns from North Coast, and over 40 breakout session speakers. Get 30% off now by using code SAVECASH. That's S-A-V-E-C-A-S-H. Visit smallgroupnetwork.com forward slash events to register you and your team today. And also, we can't forget about Accelerate. Accelerate the health and growth of your small group ministry by attending one of our Accelerate small group workshops. Coming up, we have one in South Carolina, April 12th and 13th, and Florida, which I will be hosting on April 20th and 21st, and then Las Vegas, May 4th through the 5th. These are going to be events you don't want to miss. So make sure you check out smallgroupnetwork.com forward slash events. And thank you for listening to Group Talk. We invite you to subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and get new episodes downloaded automatically. Also, if you enjoy this program, please take a few minutes to give us a positive rating on iTunes so that other small group point people can find us more easily. We encourage you to visit our website, smallgroupnetwork.com, to access our library of free resources, connect to a huddle with other small group ministry leaders in your area, read our blog articles, or join us on our Facebook group. Don't forget to use the hashtag SGNet when engaging with your social media channels. Thank you for your support.